The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and welcome you, and visit you in, in prison? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. So our Gospel text this morning describes an awesome event. The judgment of the nations. This event takes place when Jesus returns to earth to set up his kingdom. And there are are three reasons why this judgment must take place. The first one is evil must be exposed and finally punished. The second is righteousness must be revealed, uh, revealed and finally rewarded. And the third is Jesus must be vindicated in the place where he was rejected. Now, the first two principles hardly need any explanation this morning. Today, evil is often hidden, and when it is not hidden, it is admired, it is praised, and the evildoers are rewarded and promoted. There must be a day of judgment so that people get what they deserve. And too often today, those who serve the Lord are forgotten, they're marginalised and ridiculed. But in the last day, those who have served others with a heart of compassion, they will be remembered by the Lord and rewarded for their efforts. Nothing will be overlooked. 
Not even the offering of a cup of cold water in Jesus' name will be overlooked. But it is the third principle that deserves our closest attention, and that is Jesus must be vindicated. What a mighty thought that is this morning. He who was despised and rejected of men must one day reign on the earth. God will not allow the bloody cross to be the world's final memory of his son. To the world that crucified him, he will return as king of kings and lord of lords. So no wonder the tribes of the earth will look at him and mourn. In that day, they will realise how wrong they were. He came once as a lamb. Jesus will return as a lion. He came once as a saviour. He will come again as judge of all the earth. The rejected saviour, once crucified and left for dead, will return to judge the nations. That day is sooner than you think. And that day is coming closer all the time. Verse 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. As we think about these words, it helps to remember the context. Jesus spoke this promise to his disciples on Wednesday of Holy Week. Less than 48 hours later, he was hanging on a Roman cross. By that evening, his dead body was embalmed and placed into the garden tomb. Nothing that Friday night seemed more unbelievable than the notion of Christ coming again in glory to sit on a glorious throne. Think about the context. What glory could there be in worshipping a dead man? But Jesus knew all about Good Friday and Long Saturday and Easter Sunday. He knew with perfect foreknowledge all that the Father had ordained to, be, to, be, to befall him. All of it. The traitor's kiss. The trumped-up charges, the six trials, the mocking, the humiliation, the scourging, the spitting, the crown of thorns, the pain, the degradation, the awful weight of the sin of the world was all seen by Jesus <coughs> with perfect clarity. He knew that not many days later he would depart this world and would be gone for a long time. First, the disciples would struggle with his death and his suffering. Then they would rejoice over his resurrection. Then they would learn to live without his visible presence. Long years would turn into decades. The apostles themselves would die. However, the Christian movement would roll on and generations would turn into centuries. Empires would rise and fall. Kings would come and go, armies would go to war and the long march of history would continue. And slowly, the followers of Jesus would spread across the globe, bringing the light of the gospel into the darkness of sin. Jesus even knew about the 21st century. He saw our day clearly because he saw every day clearly. So consider this, when he came the first time, there was little glory to be seen. 
Yes, there was angels singing, but only the shepherds heard them. And only the shepherds and the magi marked his birth. Jesus arrived on planet earth unwanted, unnoticed, unexpected, mostly unheralded. Jesus was born to a virgin girl in a tiny village in the backwater province of a Roman Empire. No one in Rome or in Athens knew or cared that the saviour of the world had been born. One of the Christmas carols that we will sing in, in the next few weeks is Joy to the World. However, outside of Bethlehem, there was no joy at all. Who knew? Over his first coming, write the word humility in large letters. Over his first coming, write the word humility in large letters. He came as a gentle lamb, meek and mild, offered for the sin of the world. John 1, 1 says he came, into, he came unto his own and his own reject, received him not. Even his own people, the Jews, barely recognised him and many of them wanted to kill him. So no, it wasn't an auspicious beginning for the Saviour from heaven. But that is how the Father chose to send his Son, quietly, without fanfare, born in a stable, on a bleak winter's night. These words of Jesus uttered as they are in our Gospel reading today, Right there, in the heavy shadow, he uttered those words in the heavy shadow of the cross of Calvary, carrying all that great weight. They tell us that over his second coming, we should write the word glory in large letters. Humility then, glory to come. When he finally returns to earth, every eye will see him. No one will miss that day and no one will doubt that that is Jesus who has returned. No one will doubt that. You won't have to turn on Fox News to get a fair and balanced interpretation of the second coming. The king himself will appear on all the TV screens. He will appear all across the internet simultaneously. At least we, and, and, and least we miss this point this morning. It is Jesus himself who will be seated on the throne. And it is Jesus and Jesus alone on the throne. In these days of diverse and multiculturalism, days where we are being counselled to declare that Christians, Jews and Muslims worship the same God, let us ponder the politically incorrect teaching of our text this morning. It is Jesus who sits on the throne. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Moses, not Confucius, not a committee of famous religious leaders. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. To him, every knee will one day bow willingly or unwillingly. And every tongue will confess willingly or unwillingly, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is only one God who has revealed himself as the eternally true God. He exists from eternity as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Blessed Trinity. He alone is the true God, and there is no other God beside him. To worship any other God is blasphemy and idolatry. That God... Our God 
has come to planet earth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Born of a virgin so long ago in Bethlehem. Born to be the saviour of the world. And there is no other saviour for mankind. His name is the only name by which we may be saved. He alone is the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. To speak of God apart from Jesus Christ is to deny the entire New Testament and we must not do this. Not even in the name of peace, not even in the name of tolerance, not even in the name of a better understanding or even to prevent terrorism. No building or group of buildings, no human government or or, or national pride is worth giving up the glorious truth that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. Let the nations rage as they will. Let the people conceive their plans against the Lord and his anointed one. The Lord in heaven will have the last word. Jesus Christ is Lord and he is God. We will not be moved from this basic truth, beloved. And we will not deny our faith in these troubled times. Today he stands at the door and he knocks, waiting patiently to enter as saviour to any heart that will take him in. But another day is coming, a day of thunder, a day of fire, a day of angels, a day of trumpets, a day that of glory, a day of solemn judgment. The throne will be set up, the king will take his place, the judgment of the nations will begin. Verse 32 to 33 says, Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. We have a problem with this passage because most of us, myself included, don't have much first-hand experience with farm animals. The people who do know about sheep and goats generally say that sheep are weak and vulnerable creatures and they are easily led and quick to get lost, which is why they desperately need a shepherd. And then they they tend to say about goats that they are smarter, they are more stubborn, they're more independent, and often are natural leaders. When we lived back in Australia, our house was very close to a regional airport, and at the car park of that regional airport was a dad and his three daughters who ran a hamburger and breakfast sandwich stand. The food was awesome, but they had this evil goat. (laughs) It was mean. It was evil. You can see it by the stand there. It was mean. It was evil. And it it would not hesitate to try and butt you in the butt with its horns while you're trying to order your your, your sandwich or your burger or your, your latte. And they tend to say that goats are smarter. But in the first century, sheep and goats would normally be kept together in the same herd. So it was, not, it was often difficult to tell them apart. But when they came, time came, the shepherd would quickly herd the goats in one direction and the sheep in another. And that's the background of these verses. But picture the scene in your mind. In the centre is the royal throne. 
with Jesus himself seated on, on that throne in royal attire. He holds a scepter of the righteousness of righteousness in his hand. Flanked on either side, as far as the eye can see, are tens of thousands of bright, shiny creatures. They are all angels of God. Gathered in front of the throne are millions upon millions upon millions of people nervously milling about, waiting, talking, whispering, wondering, arguing about what will happen next. Who are these people? They are the nations of the earth. The word refers to ethnic groups, not political entities. It doesn't, don't, don't think of it like Costa Rica, Bolivia, Thailand or Kenya. Think of it as a vast assembly of people from every corner of the globe. And when the judgment begins, there is no way to distinguish people in the crowd. Then the king speaks up. Sheep on the right, goats on the left. Note that the text says it is the king who separates the people. The purpose of this judgment is not to determine who is a sheep and who is a goat. That has already been determined long beforehand. The judgment is a public separation of two people groups. Two people groups. In the beginning, they were all together. When the judgment is over, the two groups are forever separated. And this is true of life as we know it today. In this present age, the saved and the lost mingle together in the world. We live together, we work together, we play together, we live on the same streets, we go to the same restaurants, we shop at the same stores, we watch the same TV programs, we sing the same songs, we work in the same offices, we attend the same schools. Most of the time it's difficult to tell for sure who is in which group. We all look pretty much the same, especially from a distance. But the Lord knows his own because he saves them one by one. He knows them, he loves them, and he calls them by name. He puts a mark on them so that they will never be lost in the crowd. And in the last day, he will call his own from the mass of people in the world. And his sheep will be separated from the devil's goats forever the evidence introduced is now we come to the unexpected part of the story when the king introduces the evidence upon which he makes his judgment he doesn't say a thing about faith he doesn't say anything about salvation grace new birth accepting christ trusting jesus being born again having eternal life or any of the usual spiritual disciplines such as Bible reading, prayer, praise, worship, meditation, evangelism, Bible memory, church attendance or participation in, the Lord's, in baptism or the Lord's Supper. There is nothing about Sunday school, tithing, small group ministry, which Christian college you attended, what seminary is your favourite or even more matter-of-fact subjects like being a Catholic, a Baptist, a Methodist, an Anglican, a Lutheran, an Episcopalian, a Presbyterian or a Pentecostal. This, it's as if those things don't matter at all. That is to say, all of the things we normally associate with going to heaven are not even mentioned. None of them. 
That's shocking, isn't it? It's also unsettling and unnerving. If we take Jesus' words at face value, they tend to upset the theological apple cart. But if the things we're counting on aren't even mentioned, we need to ask, what does matter when it comes to entering the kingdom versus going to hell forever? And the answer may surprise you this morning. Verses 34 to 40 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when... Did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and we gave you a drink? And when did we see you? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, and naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And visit you? And the king will answer. He will answer them truly. I say to you, as you did this to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. There are several problems here. Number one, as we have already noted, he doesn't say a word about faith or salvation or grace or any of the things we know are truly essential for entering the kingdom of God. They just aren't there. Either they don't matter or else we have to find them somewhere else or find them in other verses to understand this. Secondly, is it possible that Jesus is teaching us that salvation is not by grace or faith, but strictly by human works? Thirdly, if that's the case, is Jesus teaching us that heaven is open to anyone who does these things regardless of their religious commitment? If that's the case, then the liberals and the progressives are right when they suggest that if you don't even if you if you don't even you don't even need to believe in Jesus to go to heaven some will go so far as to claim that by doing good you prove that you believe in Jesus even though you've never heard of him the liberals and the progressives call it the honorable pagan theory or they might say that such a person would have believed in Jesus if they had have heard of him so that person will get into heaven anyway. Number four. Is this, is this frying your noodle? We'll, we'll get around to it. Don't worry. Number four. We need to answer the question, who are the least of my brothers? And fifthly, why does Jesus so closely identify himself with the least of these? Okay. So let's start with the last two first. The phrase, my brothers has been interpreted in various ways. Some people understand it as a reference to all the poor and all the needy and all the hurting people of the world. Anytime uh, you help anyone in any sort of need, they say you are doing it to Jesus himself. Now, no doubt there is an element of truth in that statement since we know that God has special concern for the poor and the hurting and the lonely and all the suffering people of the world. He sees them, he knows them, and he deeply cares for them. 
But it is doubtful that this is the primary meaning of Jesus' words. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 to 50, when he heard that his mother and his brothers were waiting to speak with him, he offered this startling reply. He said, who is my mother and who, is, who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The reply is startling because it shows that Jesus' true family His true family consists of those who follow him in faith. Now, applied to our gospel text in Matthew 25, 31 to 46, it means that the least of these refers to Christian brothers, Christian sisters who are sick, needy, hungry, hurting and in jail. There were many Christians in the first century who who filled that description. There are multitude of millions of Christians that fill that description today. Today. If that is correct, Jesus is saying, when you do good to my people, you are doing good to me. Now, I can easily understand this concept. For instance, Giselle and I, between us, have seven children. If you know our children and if you do a kindness to them, it's even better than if you did a kindness to us. We won't forget the kindness done to members of our own family. And the flip side is also true. If you mess with my family, you're messing with me. Hurt them and you will hurt me as well. We talk about my people, don't we? They're my people. And we take care of our own. That's just the way it is. And those who show kindness to your people are showing kindness to you. And if you hurt, if someone hurts your people, you will take it personally. And that's what Jesus means when he explains his rejection of the goats, verses 41 to 45. Then he said, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and I was like, make, make, did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will they will answer saying, Lord, when? Did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. But that still leaves some loose ends that are hanging out there in our discussion this morning. Does this passage really teach salvation by works? as some have suggested, and in Jesus' teaching, and is Jesus teaching us that honourable pagans will go to heaven if they feed the hungry, care for the sick, and visit the prisoners? The answer is found in verse 34, when Jesus describes the sheep as you who are blessed by my Father. In Matthew's Gospel, the concept of being blessed goes back to the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 1 to 12. This is where we first see this language or this phrase. 
in, th- in that passage, Jesus promised that those who were poor in spirit would inherit the kingdom of heaven. That refers to people who see their own sinfulness and despair at their own condition. And they throw themselves on the mercy of God, crying out for forgiveness and salvation. They mourn over their sins and they are counted amongst the meek. They, are, they hunger for God's righteousness. And having found God's mercy, they show it to others. Having experienced it in a personal way, they become peacemakers on earth, enduring the suffering that comes to those who follow the way of the Lord. So in short, the blessed of my father refers to the truly born again, whose lives have been changed by God through faith in Jesus. They are they alone. They alone inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for them from the foundation of the earth. But why does Jesus put stress on the hungry, the naked, the sick and the imprisoned? Because caring for those in need is the logical outworking of the Christian faith. This sort of compassion flows out of a believer's heart as naturally as wool comes from the back of the sheep. The sheep care for the least of these because to them it matters. Family honour matters. Family honour matters. The goats end up in hell not just because they didn't care for the king's needy brothers but because they Because of their uncaring or because of their unconcern, they showed that they didn't really love their king either. Because if you do it to the least, you do it to Jesus. And if you don't do it to the least, you don't really care for the king either. So the verdict pronounced, verse 47, 46, sorry. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal punishment life. The end of the story is short, it's simple and it's impossible to misunderstand this morning. The goats go to hell and the sheep go to heaven. The final separation is complete and it's irreversible. There are two heresies that are con- uh, uh, that, that run simultaneously and we can dismiss them here. We can dismiss these, uh, these two um, heresies this morning. The first one is universalism and the second is alienationism. Universalism is the belief that in the end everyone, everywhere will be saved in the vain hope of human beings that they can somehow live without God in this vain hope that human beings can somehow live without God and still end up in heaven anyway. And it is the fond dream of those who loved, whose loved ones cared nothing for Jesus and died without ever trusting him as saviour. But in their vain hopes and their fond dreams, they are smashed on the rocks of biblical truth. Not everyone will go to heaven. Some people will end up in hell forever. Alienationism is, as its name suggests, is the belief that the unsaved will not suffer eternal punishment but will simply be destroyed by God. But this verse uses precisely the same Greek word for eternal for both halves in both halves of the verse. 
The punishment is as eternal for the goats as life is eternal for the sheep. Both last forever. The great British writer J.C. Ryle sums up the evangelistic message this way. He says, let us ask ourselves on which side of Christ we are likely to be at the last day. Shall we be on the right hand or shall we be on the left hand? Happy is he who never rests until he can give a satisfactory answer to that question. Where will you be on the last day? On the right or on the left? Are you a sheep or are you a goat? All the issues of this life pale into comparison with that great question this morning. They pale. Let each person who hears these words think how you would answer. What does your heart tell you? Can you say these words with the assurance of settled conviction? Yes, I am trusting Jesus and clinging only to him as my hope for eternal life. The Lord Jesus is my shepherd and by God's grace I'm counting I'm counted as one of his sheep. Can you say these words with the assurance of a settled conviction this morning? Just one final detail and then I'm done. Did you notice how both the sheep and the goats are surprised by the judgment? Remember, this is the judgment of sheep and goats, not of sheep and wolves. Sheep and wolves are easily, or they're easy to tell apart, aren't they? But sheep and goats can be easily confused, especially when they're mingling in an enormous crowd. It's almost as if no one knows who belongs where until the king utters his judgment, especially the goats. Uh, certainly the goats are surprised to, be, to end up in hell. And everyone is surprised when Jesus declares that what you did or didn't do for his brothers is what it, it, it was also what you did or didn't do to him personally. So what's going on here? Just before leaving Australia for the USA... I attended a, a three-day spiritual retreat. Uh, the retreat was based on the teachings of St. Benedict. And the first rule of life St. Benedict gave his followers was hospitality. It's the first rule. They must always show kindness to strangers because in doing so, they are showing kindness to Christ himself. And that's why even to this day, people around the world go to Benedictine monasteries for personal retreats because they know they will always be welcome. The story is told about an old Benedictine monk who was about to lock the monastery doors at the end of a very exhausting weekend. There had been so many guests and some of them had proved to be quite difficult to handle. He was secretly glad to see them go so he could have a bit of a rest. Just as the door closed, or as he was closing the door, a new group of pilgrims walked up the path and asked for admission. Under his breath, he said to himself, Lord Jesus Christ, is it you again? <laughs> and then I imagined myself standing in the great crowd on Judgment Day. Eventually, my name is called out. Neil Taylor, 
with some reluctance, with some butterflies in my stomach, I stepped forward. So you were a pastor? Yes, Lord. Do you remember when that fellow Joshua Boquest came up to you and kept telling you how he had just heard you preach the best sermon that he ever heard? Yes, Lord, I remember that. Frankly, it wasn't the best sermon. (laughs) From my point of view, it didn't even compare to a lot of sermons that I've heard. And I've heard a lot of sermons. Do you know that, Neil? Plus, part of it that you said was just plain wrong. Let me ask you one more question, Neil. Do you remember that Sunday morning after the service when you were tired and you were hungry and in a hurry to get to the Akron family restaurant (laughs) so you could have something to eat? And a little girl came up to greet you. You didn't know her. You didn't know who she was. But she bent, you bent down anyway and said hello and she hugged your neck and you hugged her back. Do you remember that? Not really, Lord. That was me, Neil. That was you? Yes, that was me. What a revelation the judgment day will be for each one of us. The things we thought were so important, so crucial, so vital... The things we included on our personal resumes, the degrees we earned, the money we made, the deals we closed, the friends we cultivated in high places, the buildings we built, the organisations that we managed, the trips we took, the fortunes we amassed, all so that people of the world and even our Christian friends would know that we didn't just sit on the couch watching The Simpsons every night. The positions we finally attain, all the stuff that we take uh, such pride in, the things that in themselves were not evil and are not evil, they're not wrong and they're not bad, but somehow we combine them all together and hope that they would give us a reputation to give us our standing, our place in the world, even our place in the Christian world our reason for existence, our bragging rights. However, all of it adds up to, all of it together adds up to what? Nothing. Zip. Nada. Here's the big idea. What matters to Jesus are the things we can't remember. The cup of cold water, the bag of chips for a friend, the quick phone call, the friendly hello, the pat on the back, the prayer over the phone. A word of encouragement, a visit with a sick friend. This is shocking truth this morning. But in a way, it is a comfort. But let me bring a balance. I'm not saying those things in, in, in that very long sentence don't matter. They do matter. And we have to do them because life rolls on. And we either get involved or we stay on the sidelines and complain. Someone has to balance the budget. Companies have to be managed. Trips have to be taken. Connections must be made. Speeches must be given. And in the end, someone's name is going to be put up in lights. But those things, which are good, honourable in themselves, are not the bottom line of life. 
We are called to be faithful in doing whatever God has given us to do. And as we are faithful day by day, there will be thousands of chances, some big, some small, some momentary, some microscopic. There will be moments for us to do good and to show kindness and hospitality to those around us. Some of those moments we will forget. I suppose that over a lifetime we'll forget nearly all of them. Sometimes it will be a chance to help the hurting or to answer a question or to lift someone's spirits or to pull out your wallet and make a contribution or to give an offering. And sometimes the need will be great and our response will truly cost us greatly in terms of time, in terms of money, in terms of effort and in terms of sacrifice. But whether big or small, massive or microscopic, The Lord Jesus sees all of it and he remembers all of it. And one day he will reward us for for all of it. So the message isn't really go out and do good. That's not what I'm saying. Though doing good is a good thing to do. And it's not about feeding the hungry as much as though the hungry must be fed. The prisoners desperately need to be visited and remembered and prayed for. No one can do it all and no one does it all, all the time. But these words of Jesus offer a liberating perspective to us because it's easy to feel overwhelmed or or perhaps resentful at the intrusion of others into our well-planned agendas. And sometimes, consciously or not, We can all give off an air of arrogance, an air of pride, an air of superiority, sorry, uh, an air of smugness, let's say, because we've found the truth and you haven't. You haven't, you poor, unlightened pagan. You haven't found the truth. And don't think the poor, unlightened pagans can't sense that. They're not stupid. They know when Christians talk down to them. The words of Jesus help us see things in a new light. We know that when we go in his name, he goes with us. We know that we are going with him and for him. We know all that because we say it every Sunday after the service, don't we? And we're going to say it again this morning, don't, aren't we? We know that. But now we know that we're also going to him. There's the difference. Jesus is on the receiving end of the mercy transaction. He stands with the homeless. He is there with the single mother struggling with three young children. He, is, he has a prison cell in every prison in America. He walks the halls of the cancer units. He hears the cries of the abused children. There is a sense in which the Lord Jesus can be found wherever there is pain and human suffering. If there is a broken heart, you can find him there. If there is sadness or guilt, Jesus will be there somewhere. That's why he was called a man of sorrow. When we help his people, we are helping him. When we dry a tear or offer a word of hope, we are serving him. When we go the extra mile 
even though we are already dead tired and a little bit frustrated because we don't have the time or the energy and we're already behind in our schedule, but we do it anyway, he sees, he knows. He knows what we have done and he marks it down as if we have done it to him personally. One day, long after we've gone, and we've forgotten the frustrations of this life, Jesus will remember it. And we will be rewarded. It all comes down to this. Jesus forgets what we remember, and he remembers what we forgot. Please stand with me if you're able, and let us pray. Help us, Father, to know that we will give an account for, fault, for the following this morning, how we lived our lives, how we invested all of our resources and cared for your family. Grant us the privilege of seeing you, Lord Jesus, in the people whom we serve, rather than getting frustrated with them. Awaken in us your merciful and kind heart to the destitute, to the poor, and to the needy. Help us not to go light on ourselves since we know that we are not saved by works but by faith alone father in the good name of jesus we pray and all god's people said amen, amen.